We learned last week, didn't we? We learned last week that the book of Acts, if we're going to think about the church rightly, we have to think of the book of Acts as the New Testament book of Joshua. God has revealed himself to us through miracles and mighty works and through the work of his mediator, Jesus. And then Jesus, having left, has now commissioned his disciples, his people, to be on conquest, to go and take for Jesus what has been promised for him. And that's what the Old Testament book of Joshua was. Moses revealed all the truth. Moses wrote down things for God. Moses did many miracles, and then he left. And then Joshua was sent at the head of Israel to go and conquer the lands that rightly belonged to them because God promised it to them. And we reminded ourselves that that Psalm chapter 2 verse 8 tells us that the father promised, yes, Moses that promised land, and yes, Abraham that, that stripper next to the Mediterranean, but he has promised to his son every nation. The whole globe upon which we sit and every stellar star and galaxy we visit belongs to Jesus and where there is a human bearing his image, there will be Christians, one for Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of all. He is the Lord of history. He's the King of all kings. Amen? So here is how we think of the book of Acts. Jesus is now ascended and building his church. The Father has now exalted his Son and is extending his kingdom. The question becomes imperative for us, how does he do that? How does he do it? Has his word revealed to us just the particular ways in which he builds his church and extends his kingdom? And the answer is yes. A great portion of that answer is in the epistles, the letters, the books coming in the New Testament. But a great portion of it is also here written in history for us in the book of Acts. Today, we come uh, off the back of last week, the the falling of the Spirit on Pentecost, the the, the creation of the New Testament church, and uh, and the preaching of of Peter where he said, here's how to think about your life now. Don't wait for the Messiah. He's already come. Don't expect the last days to come. They are now here. Don't wait for something to happen. Be told what to do. Repent. Believe in Jesus. Enter the new covenant. That's it and then get about preaching that. So we've come off the, the back of this powerful sermon of Peter, and we, and we looked a little bit topically at how God blesses preaching as his main tool to add souls to his kingdom. I pray you believe that. Where, where, where the church grows is, is honestly when you boil it down little more than the church getting back to the preaching of the word in the spirit. But today we see another we see another tool that God uses to grow his kingdom, and it is the compelling power of true fellowship. If you read the book of Joshua, you'll see God conquering nations and armies in all sorts of uh, various and diverse ways. He'll he'll knock down one wall by the blast of a trumpet. He'll he'll, he'll destroy another through through a battle in the plain. He'll he'll destroy another through drawing everybody out and then sending fire to that town. There's all sorts of ways that Joshua led the people of God to take the promised land. And so also in the book of Acts, we see many different types of ways that God adds souls to his number. And we're going to see this in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. Hear now the word of the only true living God. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. 
and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. May God bless this reading of his own powerful, inerrant, true, inspired word in our midst. Let's try that again. May God bless the reading of his word in our midst this morning. Okay, so you actually believe it. You are awake and ready. Friends, as we look to this, we see uh, 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 four or five little points that the writer of the book of uh, Acts, which is no doubt uh, uh, Luke, the, the Dr. Luke, who was a good friend and missionary companion of the Apostle Paul, he goes back and he recounts these, the, these things that happened in the early church in those months following Pentecost to give us a taste of what churches ought to love and in some measure inspire, or de- desire. We're going to look at the end, or at least a a few points as we go, that this is not all. In fact, it might just be a little imbalanced what the church here does. And yet, even in their imperfection, this is what the Spirit is inspired to tell us. What happens after Pentecost? Where do they go from here? Surely they're just zipped up to heaven. How can you beat? What do you do when you've just had Peter's glorious first ever sermon? It's ordinary church Life, that's the next powerful miracle that the Spirit brings about through the people of God. So we see, first of all, the teaching. We're going to look at the teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers, and the awe. The teaching. We see this, of course, the first word there in verse 42 that is mentioned. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It'll say later on in verse 46 that day by day they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. This is all all language that the people were together, sitting in humility and in submission to their new Lord, Jesus Christ, that they crucified just a couple of months ago. They have now recognized that Jesus is Lord, that he is resurrected, that he is ruling and reigning, and that he is saving people and friends. The proof that people receive and submit to Jesus as Lord is that they submit to the teaching of the apostles. Let there be no one who thinks of a grand and great mature Christian who has just a few things outside of the word to hold fast to or or that they don't find themselves in submission to the teaching ministry of a local church. The, The teaching here is the apostles' teaching, that authoritative word that they uniquely were anointed by Jesus, appointed by Jesus for this glorious once in a eternal lifetime chance to be those who are the mouthpiece for God himself until such a time as the full revelation of what he wanted to say was finished, the Bible closed, no more apostles evermore. But this is what marked them. They devoted themselves. This is, this is passionate language. This is, this is not just that they, they preferred their teaching to some of the other rabbis. They were, they were throwing off the ship anything and everything that weighed down from believing wholeheartedly what Jesus was now saying to them through the apostles. Jesus spoke to them on earth. Jesus did miracles on earth. He was proven the son of God. 
they were judged for not listening. Now he speaks to them from heaven through the apostles and with spirit-born hearts, they listen. This is such an important mark that he, he mentions first because it defines and it delimits everything else that's going to happen. Prayers without a tight, sound, robust teaching ministry of the church will be idolatrous. Asking for things God doesn't promise, asking in people's name that we were not given as a mediator. Fellowship without teaching is not fellowship. It's hanging out. Fellowship without some kind of unity around and considering about and exalting the Lord Jesus Christ in truth is just Christians sitting together. Okay, you, you don't get off a train and realize that there was four Christians in your carriage and think, well, that was a blessed fellowship because we were gathered, right? Two or three, we were get, Jesus was there amongst us. No, without the speaking, the consideration, the, the, the truth in their midst, it's not fellowship. We can take the, the other things, whether it's, whether it's the miracles, whether it's the, the people being added to their number. None of that means anything if the teaching is not present. Teaching is, is like, you know what it's like? It's, it's like plumbing in a house. It's like the pipes underneath your house. Without them, everything just becomes a pool and a sewage pit. And it mixes. And what plumbing does is keep everything where they're supposed to be so that it actually becomes a, a very civilized marvel of the modern world home. This is what teaching does to a church. Without teaching, everything just conglomerates and mixes and, and festers and it becomes a cesspit. But teaching, teaching is the first thing that the Spirit-inspired Luke writes down that marked this first church. They heard the sermon. Thousands of them were saved. And for months upon months, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. But it is important to think, what is the content of that teaching? What was being explained? Because it was not merely a repetition of everything they had heard prior in the synagogues. What the apostles were doing was, yes, taking the Old Testament scriptures, as Jesus had done with them. Yes, taking the Old Testament truths, but now showing them in the new light of Jesus, who fulfilled all of those prophecies as the Messiah. Who was actually, we never saw this before, but don't you see as Jesus rebuked them for not seeing. Don't you see, Christians, that actually Jesus' crucifixion, his death and his resurrection, was in every chapter of the prophets? How did we miss this before? So, so the content of the teaching was the Old Testament scriptures in light of Jesus' death and resurrection. But more so, it was, it was also showing that what that had birthed was the new covenant, last days, kingdom of the Messiah, from heaven, breaking through onto earth. We know this because this was the content of Peter's sermon last week. Jesus is ascended, therefore we're in the last days, the kingdom has started, God has made him Lord in Christ to give repentance and salvation to all who come to him. So that's the content. The, new, the old covenant being explained through Christ, Christ's kingdom being established and growing, and of course then, as Matthew 28 would make clear, Jesus would have them not just make disciples of all nations, but also to teach them everything he had commanded. So these New Testament applications of the law and, and the ethical commandments and what it meant now to be the people of God was also being explained. That is what they were devoted to as they heard the apostles' teaching, as they went to the temple to hear them. Remember that the, the, in those early days, and we see this in verse 47, that the Christians were under good favor with everybody. The Jews considered that those who believed in this Jesus fellow 
to be another one of the already four schools of teaching within Judaism. And here's this weird little sect over there, and they believe in this Jesus, but wow, they held them in favor. And, and so therefore, they had this freedom of moving in and out the temple. They weren't kicked out yet. That won't happen for decades. But they're meeting in this, in this football-sized colonnade corridor outside in the temple courtyard. That's where they're meeting, as we're told in Acts 5 and again in future chapters. So they're meeting together, they're teaching. They're going to their homes, they're teaching. They're spending time together over meals, they're teaching. They're always, always, always devoted to what the apostles are telling them Christ is telling them. What a glorious time. What a glorious truth. What a beautiful first and ultimate mark of a church is that they are devoted to the teaching ministry of the church. But look next. It says the koinonia. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the koinonia, the, the fellowship, the fellowship. We see that in verse 42, we just read, but also look down to verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This is what we're seeing when he says all of the believers were together. I doubt just mathematically and logically that that means that at every point they were always physically together, as if they were moving around in one large mass because there's over 3,000 of them now, and each day the number is growing. I think, though, we shouldn't completely divorce it from spatial togetherness. Rather, what he's saying is wherever they were, they were being devoted to being together. Not always in the enormous group, but in their homes Whoever could make it to temple would be there. Whoever could, could make it to a Peter's household, they'd be there. Whoever could meet around the corner as we sing a psalm, they, they'd be there. They were devoted to that togetherness. But it has a deeper meaning as well. It means that they were in unity. They were, they were together in one heart. We actually see this come up in Acts chapter 4. Swing there briefly with me. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 32... The language is, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They were of one heart and soul. That's the other meaning of this word together. Different translations that we have, some will seem like it's translating it as physical togetherness, some will translate it as being of one heart, but, but it, it is necessarily both. It is that they are so unified in their love of Jesus they are, they are so, and remember, coming back to our first point, unity that is not defined and delimited by the teaching ministry of the apostles' words is not unity. It needs to be able to be defined. Well, we're not big on the truth stuff, but we're one. One what? Define it. Oh, well, well you know, we're, we're all together on this and we're of one heart and one soul. To do what? What are you? At the moment, without a defined word about you, without, without something defining, one just literally means a blended mess. You're one like a snot clump, like a blood clot, like a, like a what? What are you? Oh, but with definition, we see that we are one like a complex built house is one. We are one like a, like a human body with all of its members and its cells and its hormones and its glands is one. Different for sure, but together in purpose and heart. 
Of course, until, it doesn't say this, but I know it's supposed to say this. Forgive the Lord God for this one. They were together until they started offending each other. Then they found their little sex and groups, divisions. Then they were together of one heart and mind. They, they had all things in common until they sinned against one another. Now, that was never meant to happen. I know God didn't say that, but he should have, shouldn't he? Because that's how we live. That, that we are so devoted to one another because we love the teaching and, and he did not come through entirely on his word. She actually said a word about me behind my back. Yeah, we don't care. You ought not care. Where there is sin, it is dealt with according to the apostles' teaching. But friends, don't, doesn't, doesn't being together mean by definition we love exercising God's grace in forgiveness? Bear the wounds on your back before you lay it out onto your brother or sister. Bear, bear, the, bear the loss in your account before you try and shuffle all debts around to others. Friends, they were together and they meant it. They worked through what was of harm. They had worked through what was, what was the problem. Can we just remember that just a few weeks before, Peter and his other blokes were being persecuted by the very people they're preaching to. Oh, they were together in heart and soul in full unity. But we also see that they became comrades. They were very generous. Verse 44 and 45 says that they, believe, um, uh, they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Look back also at chapter 4, that portion we read just before from verse 33. Sorry, verse 32. They were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Verse 34. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as, their own, as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Here's what we read in our left-leaning, not brothers and sisters, our left-leaning mates who want to interpret this text. This was the first ideal communism of love. It's funny, I was asked just this weekend by a non-Christian friend, if I come to your church, are you going to uh, make me sign over my house? I said, yep, yep, we do. <laughs> yeah. Depends where your house is. If it's, only if it's out of suburb. Yeah, I'll take it. I said, of course not. How, how silly is that? There's, there, there's no church that would do... I wish there was no church that would do that. <laughs> this, this idea that what they get from here is, is everybody loved Jesus so much, they despised what they owned and sold it all like good hippies and good communists. And, and what they did was they made a common pool of money that you could come at the end of each day, just like the Jewish group, the Essenes did. You could come, your, the head of household would go each day and would apply for and receive the, 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 the ration or the portion that your family was allotted and there's your food and there's your money and there's your rent and whatnot. And then they went home. No, sorry, they sold their homes. They have no home. So where were they going? And what does verse 47 and 46 tell us in chapter two when it says they were meeting home to home? No, they didn't sell all of their homes. They didn't sell all of their possessions. They were selling those things that were unneeded that the gospel, that the, that the compelling power of Jesus and the mission of the church compelled them to sell, they sold because they saw people around them in need. Now, now we need to make distinctions here. There may have been at one point 
and probably was according to chapter 4, this big pool of money that was being given to the apostles. A, a huge donation fund. Now, that sounds a lot less communistic when you realize we do that every Sunday. That our, that our goods are brought and given and go to a bank account, right? Not communism yet because it's voluntary giving. You're not forced to sign it over like the Jewish Essenes were. You're not forced to be taxed your whole lot and then get a dribbling like you are in communistic countries. No, what this was was a generous, voluntary giving. And at other times, they didn't give it to the apostles. They simply saw the need and filled it, but remained friends, remained sovereign as God would have us be over our own possessions because private property matters. We're actually going to see how this became abused through Ananias and Sapphira. And by the time Acts chapter 11 comes about, we see that this is an unsavory and imbalanced economical system because the whole Jewish church is poor and now leaning on the other churches for donations. So this is by no means a, a snark at them for doing what they did. It is that we ought to conform ourselves to their heart and not always to every moment of their actions because, friends, a large part of the reason they were selling of their properties and their homes was because a year prior, not even that, Jesus had told them specifically, this land is going to be taken by the Romans. This Jerusalem mount is going to be destroyed. Don't bank the kingdom here. That's one reason, that they were willingly selling it while the market was hot to take the money and support the church, the true temple, the true Mount Zion, the true purpose of God now in the new covenant. But secondly, a lot of the people who had come from Pentecost were the, were the Jews from the diaspora. They were across the known world, came to Pentecost for the holiday, got saved and said, you know what? I'll write a letter right now. I'll sell my home back in Rome. I'll sell my home back in Syria. I'll sell my home up in, in Cyprus so that we might fund the mission of the church here. And so they stayed. They rented places. They lived together in a beautiful community of love, yes, but not a communism of love. Private ownership, overflowing generosity. And friends, what would it look like? What would it look like if we were to love to do just precisely that? That there was not any needy among them. Not because your, your income was taken and the elders told you how much to give. That's not what this is, but a spirit-born love. That where there is one without a home, he's welcomed in. That where there is one without, without, without a, a car, without the clothing that is required, without what he needs to get to work, support his family, or whatever the like, that the, that the mothers of the church surround her, that the, that the brothers of the church get around him and they give and they give and they gave. This was a beautiful mark of the fellowship that was going on in the early church. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the fellowship and thirdly, they were devoted to the breaking of bread and to prayers. Look at, uh, that's in verse 42, but also look at verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together, that's not the main point of the sentence yet, and breaking bread in their homes, not the main point of the sentence yet, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. That syntactically in the structure of the Greek, that phrase is the center, the point of that sentence. Doesn't that sound like a strange and unnecessary thing? That they were breaking bread together, they were receiving their food with glad and generous hearts together. 
Yeah, this was a part of the, the early church. The early church mark was that they would eat their food together. Now, now, now as we read and we look and we put the, the, the composition of Acts together and we notice other things in church history, what this would have looked like was week by week, day by day, there would be gatherings of certain times of the day in the temple where again there would be teaching, there would be beautiful fellowship, distribution of the needs and a fellowship meal together as the sun went down over that beautiful mountain. They would eat, they would, they would spend time together. And as we said before, they would discuss what they've learned. They would discuss and ask their questions about the teaching that is being given. And then also it says, house to house. Then they'd go home. And, and you know what? Let's bring our families over to our house tonight. Tuesdays, we're over at the, 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 the Beth Thaniel's. And, and, and Wednesdays, we're over at the, at the Cephas's house. And, and, whatnot. and they're all organizing. They're being together. Why? Why is that worth mentioning? Well, if you've sat around with Christians for extended period of time or allotted times or periods around a meal and the conversation is about Christ, you don't need to ask why. What a beautiful mark of a genuine fellowship this is when we are sharing meals, when we are sitting down, when we're discussing, when we're inviting others in. The needy who couldn't cook comes over to yours and feasts. Friends, this was a mark of the church. This is, this is such a beautiful thing that we see in the first in the first few months, that they would eat together and love their time in their midst. I think there's something in all of us that desire that, that, that love that, for long, that long for that. When, when we don't just become these, these singular households, these singular families, these singular people and get foodora and Uber Eats every night, but when it's, a, when it's a celebration of God's good gift in food, when it's a celebration with other people in sharing and, 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 and wine flows freely and the generosity is there and the stories go and Jesus is praised, that's a mark of true and loving fellowship. But also, as some, someone's going to ask, doesn't that mean, though, really, not that they were enjoying meals, but that they were, they were doing communion, the breaking of bread in their homes, and, and there is a portion to that which is true, that this also included the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Everybody's got to eat, and at every meal, they did not do communion. They did not do communion at every single meal. That, that basically goes without saying. However, you know, they, they did not have, is what I mean, they did not have this, this conscience that told them every time they eat food, they have to do the Lord's Supper, like, like grace. No, it's not that. It's, that. it's that every time they had the Lord's Supper in this early portion of church history, and we even see this coming up in Corinth, they would make a full meal out of it. That it would be, it would be uh, uh, bookended onto the, onto the back after the great fellowship meal and then would come communion, which means that when Luke's writing down and he says they're, they're breaking bread and communion, there will always be a meal involved. It doesn't mean, though, that whenever there's a meal involved and they're breaking bread in that way, that they're also doing communion. But what we need to see is just, just the mix of both, the fellowship meals and the time around the Lord's Supper as supremely important. That which, that which reminded them that they're not just pals hanging out. They're not just having a great meal. This is not just a celebration of a pooled resource. This is not just us. This goes central and it goes upward. This is a people purchased by Jesus' blood. And while we enjoy our fellowship, if there be sin in our midst, Christ will judge. We are a holy people, a redeemed people. Not because we found each other and had a great party. Not even primarily only because of Pentecost, but because Jesus came and died for us and purchased our souls at Calvary's tree. Jesus paid it all, became even the center of their meals. They did the sacraments. And then we see the prayers. Look at verse 42. 
They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and the prayers. We even see down in verse 46 that they are day by day attending the temple together. Now, I said before that, that of course, that attending the temple was probably for teaching and for meals, yes, but there's every reason to assume that that, that was either happening, probably at both, the morning sunrise time of prayer that the Jews would have. So almost everybody living in Jerusalem at the moment who is, who is now converted and a Christian has their, 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 their rooster set for 5.50 so that they can make it up to the temple for morning prayers. And every day, just before they get their coffee, at 3 p.m., there is also a prayer meeting in the temple. So, so this likely becomes this overlap of schedules where the Christians are gathering in the temple for the allotted prayers and then moving off to the side as they exult and preach and eat and do communion about the Lord Jesus Christ. But they were devoted to the prayers. I love that we gather, and I've loved every time we've gathered for the prayer meetings at the beginning of each term. It stirs my souls, my soul, just one of them. It stirs my soul to see the souls of people breaking and weeping and crying and praying. Oh, how we love to pray. But that's once a term. And we praise God for it and let there be more, but, but that's once a term. What about every single one of us, every day, 5.30 p.m., at least after work, right here at church, every single day and morning. Friends, you know what that sounds like? Like we hear it and go, it's probably different to that because that's extreme. That sounds like, like nothing compared to the Welsh revival. That sounds like nothing compared to the Moravians, those revivalistic missionary. That sounds like nothing compared to the Reformation, sunrise sermon, sunset sermon, every single day, midday prayers. Friends, it, it sounds like nothing. This is just what the Spirit does when He falls and He really pours out new hearts onto the people of God. They, they call on the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation. And they scream out and call out to the name of Jesus day by day by day in prayer. It would have been communal, all of them together. It also would have been, would have been house to house. It also simply would have been individual as people devoted themselves to prayer. And, and again, the content, what were they praying? Well, they would have been praying many of their Old Testament prayers, their Old Covenant Psalms and, and the promises of the prophets, but now seeing Jesus in them. And now praying according to Psalm 67, Psalm 89, Habakkuk and Isaiah, Lord, may your glory fill the earth through the name of Jesus as the waters covers the sea. May your kingdom of Jesus extend and expand. Now they, now they saw Christ in their prayers. And also they were praying, of course, for their needs as any had need, as, as they were needing healing, as they were needing situations solved, as they needed souls saved. All sorts of things were the prayers of those early saints, but they were devoted. We need to see it was not just bookended on the back of the meal. It did not just happen to occur at the end of the song. It was a devotion to prayers. I wonder whether that's what your fellowship group, what your time alone, what your time as a family looks like. Is there, is there a portion of time, as much as you eat every day, so also we must call on the name of God every day? Is there a devotedness to prayer as much as there is doing the laundry, doing our taxes, filtering the pool, feeding the dog? Is there as much devotion to the things of God in prayer, an intentional allotment, a givenness that is not legalism but is discipline for prayer? Oh, that we would be that type of people. And then look at verse 43. This might not seem as a distinct mark to you, but I pray that it would be so. 
Verse 43, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. We also see this come up in, in chapter four, that, 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 that miracles are being poured out and their effect is part of the awe that is seen. I want to frame this again in the idea of Acts being the book of the conquest for the new covenant. What we saw the miracles doing as Jesus was on earth, it was, it was acts of his compassion. It was acts of his love when he saw people suffering. Those things are true. But if we can go theological for a second, well, what was also Jesus doing theologically? What he was doing was proving himself to be the promised Messiah who would do these miracles. Yes, they, they were born out of his love, but not everybody who loves has the ability to wake somebody up from death, right? Give Peter his, his, his mother-in-law back. I don't know whether that was mercy to the mother-in-law or hatred to Peter. I don't know. But some, some of you will get it soon. <clears throat> he, rose his, he rose people from the dead. He gave back health to those who were sick. Yes, it was mercy, but it was primarily the proving that he was the Messiah. What we see in the miracles of the church is again, not ultimately an obsession about miracles. It is not a, not a devotion to miracles. Do you notice that it's in a different sentence? They devoted themselves to the teaching, the fellowship, the prayers, and the breaking of bread, and miracles happened. Were they devoted? Devoting themselves to miracles? Not at all. It was Jesus who was doing the miracles in their midst, and, and so we see it as the same thing. On earth, he did it to prove his messiahship to demand repentance and faith from people who saw, to leave them without excuse, that's what he's doing in the exact same way through the miracles of the church. Paul will bring this up in 1 Corinthians 14 and say, when a prophecy was given that no one could have known but the soul in the pew heard their secrets laid out before them, they would say, surely God is in this place. They would be cut to the heart. They would fall to the knees. That is what Jesus does through his church by using miracles. We don't chase them. We don't pursue them in, a, in, in, an, in, in, in an addicted way. What we do is devote ourselves to teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayers, and you won't stop the miracles that Jesus decides to pour out. Even as you go and study, and you'll try and prove me wrong, that that was something that only happened in the first century. You go and study even church history amongst the most reformed amongst the most, most Calvinistic, amongst the most cessationist, and you will see Jesus doing miraculous works through his church to prove to the world that he is the Messiah. But not only is it an extension of Jesus' life on earth doing miracles, the miracles being done by Jesus now is also a reflection of the miracles that God did through Moses. Go with me to Joshua chapter 2. In Joshua chapter 2 and verse 9 and 10, we, we get, a, we get a, a sense of what is happening in the, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. I told you before, the book of Acts is a conquest in the New Testament, just like the book of Joshua is a conquest of the Old Testament. And, and what we see Joshua, Joshua account for us is that as he would go through the promised land, and, and in this example, he gets up to Jericho, what enemies would say Sometimes it would mean they believe. Sometimes it would mean that, that they reject. But what they would all say was, we have heard 
of the marvelous works done in your midst by Yahweh. We have heard and we fear. They would either say, so please enter into covenant with us or reject covenant and be judged. But that old covenant, so, so as they were on the conquest for Christ, people would say, we have heard the mighty works and we tremble. This is what Rahab, speaking for the people of Canaan in the city of Jericho, she spoke for the people. She was a, she was a, she was a woman of the night, a, a rental wife. Let me not use too uh, 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 explicit a language in a family service, but she was that kind of gal. She heard what the soldiers were talking about. She heard what all the strong men who would come and buy of her services would speak about the Jewish people. And they were saying, they have a God that makes us tremble. Have you heard the works being done in their midst? He leads them like a pillar of fire during the day. Sorry, smoke during the day and, and this pillar of fire by night. He has thwarted the giant kings beyond the Jordan. He split Egypt to smithereens and separated the Red Sea and walked them through. They were unnerved. Rahab says their heart was melting as they considered the works being done. Joshua chapter 2 verse 11. She says to the spies who have come into Canaan, we have heard about these things. Verse 11, and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you for the Lord your God. He is God in heavens above and on the earth beneath. This is how we think of the ministry of miracles in the local church. Not something we devote ourselves to, but in being devoted to the true things Jesus Christ pours out in our midst so that the world holds us in awe, Acts chapter 2 says. That those who look on say, this is the real God. This is the powerful Jesus. This is true salvation. This makes us fear. And we either come near like Rahab, the Gentile, and, and receive our souls saved or we reject, we push back, and we are the enemies conquered by Jesus Christ in judgment. But it was so that the awe would strike them. Back to Acts chapter 2. It says that awe was upon every soul. Awe. This might be translated as fear, as terror, or as amazement, as, 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 as severe intrigue, as, as respect. But whatever it is, it is, it is the miracles and the signs being done in their midst. It is, it is the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the preaching of the apostles and the answers to their prayers. All of this made the people around them in Jerusalem hold them in awe. Awe was upon every soul in their midst and beyond. There's, there's ways to think, and in one measure it's right. We want people to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, be welcomed in our church service, and, and I'm thankful that you're here if you're, if you're not a believer. That of course, Paul even speaks about removing every unnecessary stumbling block, every stupid cultural thing we put up just because that's what Christians do or sticking to tradition in ways that, that limit and slow down the, the turning of the Great Commission. Yes, we, we throw away every stumbling block to make the path of Jesus, the path of people to come and receive Jesus as clear as possible. Where it goes wrong, where it is the height of folly is when pastors and church leaders say, that one of the stumbling blocks that need to be removed is a fear of God. A soul-shaking astonishment at what goes on. 
That what needs to happen is when they come in, they feel all together comfortable. Nobody felt comfortable in the early church of Jesus Christ in the book of Acts. What they had was a, was a shocking discontentment, an, an unnerving grandeur being imposed on them so that they felt, they felt almost spiritually violated at the holy, the holy. The holiness of God being preached, the, the, the one-of-a-kindness of the atonement being spoken about, and the, and the type and the styles of the things going among the people in their love, their devotion to the teaching, their, their fellowship, their prayers, and the miracles made the outsiders hold the church in utter awe. I hope that when you come to church, there is a sense of the holy ground that there is a sense of, of approaching that which ought not be approached lightly, of a coming in. And when you welcome your friends, they are coming into the, the presence of Jesus on earth who speaks from heaven with a powerful word. There needs to be, if we will see, reformation in the church and revival among God's people in the world, a recovery of that holy, fearful, reverent awe in the church. There was awe upon every soul. And look at what verse 47 says, the last sentence. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. As we close out here and we start taking just a, just a couple of pickets of, of what might this mean in application for us. Jesus is on conquest as the great general and he uses all sorts of things to bring people to himself. And one of those things that he does, one of his, one of his, his, his strategies on the battlefield is the fellowship of the church. What might we take from this by application? First of all, is the dire need, the vital need for genuine community. Genuine community. I think I think we're probably in, the, in, the, in, the, in, a, in a generation that is the most socially networked and the most atomized. That is that all of us are broken down into single digits, single numbers. You're just citizen X on a spreadsheet, nameless individuals who, who have such little genuine belonging to a people. I, I mean, I mean... To, to belong to a people who love a place, who have a genuine sense of identity with other people is in fact both God's will in the Old Testament and his design in creation. You don't find a single person in the Old Testament who's, who's not defined, except for Melchizedek, who had none, by their descendancy and their people. I am Tom, son of who? Brother to who? Which people do I belong to? It is good for the human, the humanity, the image of God in all of us to be in genuine, personal community, on a mission together, achieving things together, relying on one another, being a genuine community. That is so, so needed to be recovered in the people of God, that we would have a genuine community. We have a people. Even armies do this, that everybody will belong to a regiment or a platoon or a legion, a sense of mission, belonging, and place. This is what we need. Secondly, as we think of the fellowship of the early church, the true fellowship, we need to realize that fellowship is mission. Think of, think of the time you spend with other Christians and don't just think, well, it was, I guess it was a byproduct 
I had to go here preaching individually. She had to go here preaching individually. So I guess that means as, unless we have as many pastors, one-to-one pastoring as we do Christians in the world, I guess a few of us will be in the same church, right? And this one's this big and that one's that big. And I just happen to be among other people because that's how space works. No, no, the, the togetherness is a weapon that Jesus uses to save souls. Just, just think of the ways that, of the ways that, the opportunities that arise when a people devoted to Jesus, his teaching, the breaking of bread, the fellowship, the, the, the prayers, what opportunities arise? First of all, as we invite our neighbors in, as they watch and they hear and they are compelled to come in, they hear the teaching. Isn't this one of the great advantages of your fellowship groups, of, of your on-campus Bible studies, of your workplace gatherings, whatever it is, This is one of the key elements of opportunity for us, that as they come in, we don't change the topic to something less Christ-centered, but they come in and are able to hear our teaching and then start asking questions. What do you mean by that? What what does this mean? What's your view on this? Hey, I've heard that you guys believe this. Can Can I question you? What an opportunity that is. Also, though, they come in, and even in the church, what they witness is the sacraments. Do you think of the sacraments as missional? The sacraments are given in baptism and the Lord's Supper, as Calvin said, to be a visible sermon, a visible gospel, a visible word. They watch their old mate who used to go out drinking with them, get in water, get back up, testify to the saving grace of Jesus, and these people will sing to somebody about the saving grace that changes lives. What a powerful moment that is for an unbeliever. Or at the the Lord's Supper when the solemnity falls and we each come And we partake carefully, not out of hunger, not out of thirst, but out of spiritual hunger and thirst. We come and they watch and they hear the confession and they hear what we say, they see. It is such a missional opportunity. Or or even closely connected to to baptism is the witnessing of changed lives. I was speaking to somebody just this week who was telling me in his prodigality, in being far away from God, he told me, there's somebody at your church who I used to know. There's somebody at your church that I used to do X and Y and Z with. He was liberal in his truths. He was telling me the the types of things, and he said, I know one thing. Jesus is real for what he's done in that man's life. To be able to come in, and some of you go the opposite way on this. It it feels a little bit hypocritical because they know you from before, so I don't want them to come to my church and, and mingle those two circles. Friends, bring them. How many times I've heard that you invite your friend and then this guy over here went to high school with that guy. He was an atheist, an absolute womanizer, a bully and a criminal, and now here he is leading a church. Not me, not me, somebody else. (laughs) And here he is in your midst. He's a deacon. He's serving communion. He's now, everybody's talking to me. I knew him in that group. I knew him in that gang. And here he is. Everybody can't speak highly enough of this gal, of this guy, of this person. What a powerful missionary opportunity it is when we have people in our midst who don't yet know Jesus. Or even further, as we think of those times around the meals, as those times around the Lord's Supper, those times in our midst, if nothing else, they have a unique opportunity that happens to them almost nowhere else of being brought into the immediate presence of God's Spirit where they are demanded to decision where the rest of the world is not available to them, 
They, they bury themselves in their phone and they scroll. Maybe they duck off to the toilet to avoid it. But as long as they're here in our midst and we speak to them, they are confronted with the holiness of God. They are driven to make a decision, life or death, blessing or judgment, salvation or sin. Bring them in, friends. Bring them in and let them see the powerful fellowship in our midst. But thirdly, what we're going to say in the application, we need our community. Fellowship is a missionary opportunity. And thirdly, fellowship builds the church. Let's get our orders right. Fellowship is not the mission. The book of Genesis, God sees people loving fellowship, loving togetherness, loving unity, who he told to gather, sorry, he told to scatter, fill the earth with his glory. And they say, we love fellowship We're going to build a big building. It's called the Tower of Babel. You're going to love it, God. It's great. And what does he do? He visits, confuses, and scatters. Friends, what does God do in Acts chapter 8 when the church refused to scatter? He sent persecution in the name of the Apostle Paul to send them to the nations. Fellowship is not the mission. Fellowship is for the mission. It's a tool. It's where we're revived and strengthened and given and and bless those who open their homes and put aside the time to lead those fellowship groups, whether formal, yes, and those informal times. Bless those Sunday lunches. Bless the time of of hanging out till early hours of the morning here in this building. Glad I'm not on lock-up duty anymore. Bless all of that, but see it not as an end in itself, but an opportunity to build the kingdom, to further the mission, to establish Christ's reign on earth. And we see this because at the end of all of this, the way that Luke summarizes it is not, and they all had the most edifying experience ever. They all went away with full hearts, keen to do it again. No, no, the point of all of this, the spearhead of this text is, and this is one of the ways, verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The very definition of the church as God's people on conquest means we must be seeing souls saved and added. We must be seeing the church grow to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. In closing, Wesley was, a, was a, an amazing revivalist preacher. Hundreds of thousands would be saved under his preaching in the 1700s but his first evangelistic mission was a failure because he realized on his way home he was not actually converted himself. There was these people, the Moravians. They were German Christians who had, who Protest, uh, uh, Protestants who had, been, who had been persecuted, who had run away, and they were living on the land of this man called Count Zinzendorf, and, and they had been sent off to the Americas to do evangelism and mission and colonize, and, and some were coming back, and Charles Wesley, on the, on the same boat as them, and going about in their midst, it was the fellowship that they enjoyed their devotion to his teaching, their openness and generosity, their prayers and their no fear of death that struck him as he realized as this sole individual missionary, I don't have what they have. He said on this, on this storm on his way home in 1736, at seven I went to the Germans. I had long before observed the great seriousness of their behavior, of their humility how they had given a continual proof by performing those servile offices for the other passengers of the ship, which none of the English would dare partake. 
for which they desired and would receive no pay to do the work, saying, it is good for our proud hearts. And their loving Savior had done more for them. There was now an opportunity of trying whether they really believed and whether they had the spirit of fear for a great storm came upon us. In the midst of the psalm that they were singing, that begun their service, a little church service on the ship deck, in the middle of their opening psalm, the sea broke over, split the mainsail in pieces, covered the ship and poured in between our decks as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. A terrible screaming began among the English sailor men. The German Moravians calmly sung on. I asked one of them afterwards, were you not afraid? And he said, I thank God, no. I asked, but what about your women and your children? Were they not afraid? And he replied, no, our women and children are not afraid to die. From them, I went to their crying, their trembling neighbors, and pointed out to them the difference in the hour of trial between him that feareth God and him that feareth him not. At 12, the wind fell. This was the most glorious day which I have ever seen. He spoke of them saying, they walked worthy of the vocation wherewith they were called and adorned the gospel of the Lord in all things. They, he watched their days of prayers. He watched their ordinary acts and he watched them bury their children. And Wesley was struck to the heart and knew, I do not have what these people have. He went home, sought the Lord, was saved and became a tremendous revivalist preacher. Friends, the power, the power, the evangelistic power of true fellowship in the church. Let us commit ourselves to that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, it was the teaching of the apostles, it is a conviction and the, 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 the sure knowledge of every Christian that you came to the earth, you died for our sin, you rose again, and you now ascended to the, to the right hand of God so that you can create a people for your glory. We desire, Lord God, to be that people for your glory in our acts, in our, in our marks, in our characteristics, that we would be devoted to the teaching, we would be devoted to the prayers, devoted to the fellowship, devoted to the, to the meals and the sacraments. Father God, I pray that you would make us that people. Jesus, I pray that you would pour out your miracles, your wonders and signs in our midst according to your own will. Only that which would give you glory and bring awe upon every soul. Father God, we also pray and recognize that we are not the only people to be your people. We are not yet the completed people of God, but there remains billions outside of you that have been chosen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore we pray and we desire, Lord Jesus, that you would use us in conquest for the church that you would use us to bring souls in and so that as they come in, they taste of heaven. They see God with the eyes of faith. They're convicted of their sins and they say, surely God is in this place. We pray, Lord God, that you would save souls. You would grow us in strength and add to our number day by day and week by week those who are being saved. It is in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, that we pray. And everybody said...